The United in Compassion Medicinal Cannabis Symposium will be held in Sydney from the 9th to the 11th of October 2020. For more information and to book your ticket, click on events under the community tab at fxmedicine.com.au. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Tanya Wells, a naturopath who's been practicing for over 20 years, and she's a special interest and expertise in the research and development of integrative oncology programs, utilising the best evidence-based complementary therapies to work in conjunction with conventional treatments such as surgery, chemotherapy and radiotherapy. She's visited and worked in integrative oncology hospitals in Europe and Asia and is continually collaborating with other practitioners to ensure her programs and clinic models are continually being developed. Tanya is an experienced lecturer at the tertiary level, including at Southern School of Natural Therapies and Endeavour College, as well as the Faculty of Medicine at Monash University. She's written and presented a range of drug, herb, nutrient interaction seminars for medical, pharmacy and nursing professionals in integrative medicine. And she's a contributing author to a range of clinical textbooks. Welcome to FX Medicine, Tanya, how are you? Great, thanks very much for the introduction, Andrew. Tanya, you've got a long experience in helping people with cancer. Today we're going to be talking about breast cancer and recurrence of ER positive breast cancers, it's, that it's not mm. all about the oestrogen. So I think first, okay. though, we've got to talk about the different types of breast cancer. Yes, uh, I guess we wanted to have a chat about breast cancer because it definitely is the most common type of cancer that you'll see in clinic. I think the current yeah. stat is heading towards one in seven women will have a lifetime incidence of breast cancer. And certainly as you know, complementary therapists, we get a lot of patients in looking for that extra help during that process. So the vast majority of those breast cancers are estrogen positive or ER positive breast cancers. Um, but I guess the first thing we do need to talk about is the different types. So when someone's diagnosed with breast cancer or they have a lump, something shows up on a mammogram or an ultrasound or they feel it, most of the time they'll have a biopsy, which we're looking for one of three receptivity markers. So this um, includes ER, which is estrogen, PR, progesterone, and HER2, which is an epidermal growth factor receptor. And each of those is determined to be positive or negative, determining whether the cancer cells are receptive to those growth factors or hormones. So the most common types of breast cancer are ER, PR positive, HER2 negative, which is about 70%, ER, PR negative, HER2 positive, which is about 20%. Then we've got triple negative or basal-like, uh, which means that none of those receptors are positive. And then we've got triple positive, about 10% each. And the treatment of prognosis of each of those types of cancer is very different. Yeah. Yeah. So we thought we'd, today we'd focus on the ER positive ones, though, because they are the ones that are the most common. When we're talking about um, biopsying uh, a lump um, and you go for fine needle versus core, mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about the... Um, expectant results of those and, and really what happens with women? Okay. So the fine needle biopsy 
I think, has unanimously been found to be not very effective as a testing tool. A core biopsy is a, a much bigger sample of tissue that's taken, but it just means that you are going to get a reliable outcome from that test. The worst thing you want to do is have a fine needle biopsy or multiple fine needle biopsies and then have to go in and have a core biopsy or something else afterwards. So we usually just want to go straight to the the most appropriate test. Like I know people would like to shirk on the uh, or err on the side of less invasive techniques, but I just don't understand why it's, it's more than likely that it's going to progress to have a core biopsy as well. So why would you bother with the fine needle biopsy at all? Well, most of the time you wouldn't. Yeah. yeah it's, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> no, I just no. don't understand it. When you, it's, no. it's kind of like you know what's going to happen anyway, so it's like why bother with the first one because mm. all you're really doing is two procedures rather than one. Yes, and you're more likely to, you know, it just creates more stress because not only is the most stressful time for patients the wait between having a test and getting the result, but also you're going to get a result that's inconclusive, so then you have to go through the whole thing again, which is just torturous. Yeah, absolutely. Torturous <laughs> yeah. on many levels. Um, yes. So let's talk about the role of estrogen in ER-positive breast cancer. Yeah. I guess there's a couple of big messages that I'd really like to make clear because, you know, I do do um, – I chat with a lot of other practitioners and most practitioners are very confused about the role of estrogen you know, I get questions like, what, every woman has estrogen, so why doesn't every woman get ER-positive <laughs> breast cancer? Is it really causing the cancer? What does it do? How do we work it out? It's very confusing. So I guess I wanted to focus on two things today. One, to talk about exactly what is the role. Is estrogen causing damage, and if so, what damage? And then we also want to talk about non-estrogen areas because the current medical model totally focuses on estrogen. That is the the main long-term preventative support in that you're on an anti-estrogen of some sort, either something that's going to block its synthesis like an aromatase inhibitor or something that's going to block that binding of estrogen to the receptors like tamoxifen. So it's not all about the estrogen, Mm. but I guess firstly we need to talk about what it does. So estrogen... We know of estrogen as being a growth promotant. It's certainly responsible for our secondary sex characteristics. Um, but it has a role to play in DNA damage. So we have to take a step back then and say, okay, well, which people are more likely to have that estrogenic kind of genotype? There is such thing as an estrogen-responsive genotype, and some women have that. As a naturopath and a complementary therapist, we'd often talk about someone who presents with an estrogen-dominant kind of clinical picture. And those patients we'd often see who had, you know, early menarche, so their first period was quite young. They seem to have an estrogen-dominant status, conditions like fibroids um, of the breast and the uterus, endometriosis heavy bleeds, PCOS, those kinds of things that tend to look like an estrogen-dominant picture. Um, But I guess we do want to look at that person's lifetime exposure to estrogen, not just endogenous estrogen but also environmental estrogens uh, like uh, plastic extracts like BPA and phthalates and parabens and other BPAs. 
So all of those things contribute to your overall estrogenic status. And the estrogen actually can cause DNA damage, um, especially if you've had a very long lifetime of exposure to estrogen. So women who got their period very young either didn't have any children or have children late. Uh, So we've got a lot of exposure to estrogen. And, of course, we've got breast tissue, which is constantly being stimulated by estrogen. And one thing we know about in oncology is that the tissues that turn over the most frequently, so those that are replacing themselves really frequently, uh, tend to be the ones where there's more opportunity to make mistakes. There's more opportunity for those cells to make errors when they're replacing themselves. And, of course, in our breast tissue, we've got breast tissue that's developing in the luteal phase every cycle hoping that your body's going to get pregnant. We've got partial development of that breast tissue. And, of course, then it kind of shrinks down again when Mm. we get our period and it grows again and it's constantly in a state of development and stimulation. So that estrogen is very important with regards to cause and effect inferences. The way that it it actually causes damage is mostly via it being so reactive. Certain types of estrogen are reactive and they can cause DNA damage. Can I just go back a little bit? You were talking about estrogen dominant. Mm. I get confused by this because I thought that we it was one, it was kind of like adrenal fatigue. We really had to leave that term behind, that it was yeah. estrogen driven but not necessarily dominant because, of course, estrogen is cyclical. That's right. Um, so is, is it just a, a convenience term that we're talking about here or is it actually it a dominant type? Uh, no, it is a convenience term. I guess I'm going back to, you know, the, the phrases that I learned when uh, I was Mate, I do it. I do it all the time. Yeah. Is it true, though, we, we have to leave that term behind, that we say estrogen dominant, but we really mean estrogen driven? Yes, that's right. I mean, I guess we all say these phrases because they're things that people relate to, you know. They can, yeah. They can understand what we're talking about on some level, but certainly there's not a lot of evidence that shows that um, a person has necessarily an estrogen dominant scenario it is estrogen driven and certainly people have a higher level of active estrogen yeah i guess that's what we need to talk about yeah what are the factors that contribute to someone having a very high level of these active and reactive estrogens that are more likely to create problems and indeed is it just the hormone i i know that it's the hormonally sensitive receptors but is it just the estrogen that causes the cancer, given that we've got the inflammatory microenvironment, we've got the two-hit hypothesis, we've got the metabolites of the estrogen, we've got xenoestrogens ubiquitously and continuously in our environment. We've now mm. had researchers testing their friend researchers poo. And in, now this wasn't in Australia, it was um, Asia and Europe, um, but they've tested not microplastics, but lumps of plastic in mm. their colleagues' poo. I mean, this is not a concern. This is frightening. So we've, we've, we now know, it's, it's unequivocal, that we've got constant xenoestrogenic drivers. It, it, correct? Mm. Is, is that right? We do. And certainly when you test for xenoestrogens, we certainly have Um, ways of testing your metabolites and so on. And that is something that we can test for and we are exposed. There are so many other factors uh, such as, you know, dysregulated metabolism, insulin resistance, 
uh, inflammation, chronic stress, mm. you know, NF-kappa-B issues and uh, gene expression, obesity, exposure to radiation and so on, all of these things contribute um, to your oncogenic potential in every type of cancer. And there are some that are certainly far more associated with ER-positive breast cancers like insulin resistance. Certainly that is the number one factor to check. Gotcha. Because we know that insulin resistance can create an inflammatory state which not only promotes growth but can lead to treatment failure. So we, we have so many factors that are non-estrogenic uh, that we can focus on as clinicians and this is where we can we have a role to play. We have a role to play to add success to someone's treatment program. We have a role to play to create wellness. Coming back to estrogen, yeah. I think that we really do need to have a chat about, well, exactly getting, getting down to that nitty-gritty. How is estrogen metabolised? What are the different types and how are they working in a reactive way? So getting down to that, yeah. you know, the real issue in estrogen is actually estrogen metabolism. So when it comes to estrogen metabolism, we have to go back to our very basic knowledge as clinicians, and that's about phase one and two detox, liver detox. Yep. So phase one detox is uh, converting those raw compounds into intermediate metabolites, and that's mostly by cytochrome P450 enzymes present in the liver and the breast tissue. And then we've got phase two pathways. So there are a number of types of estrogen that can be formed through the metabolism pathways. And we can test for all of these things, but certainly the big ones are the 2-OH pathway, uh, which is produced by sulfation, 4-OH and 16-OH pathways. And these are the ones, the 4-OH and 16-OH pathways are active forms of estrogen. They're far more likely to cause DNA damage because they're reactive. And this is where we actually have a huge role to play in modifying these metabolism pathways mm. to reduce levels of 4-OH or 16-OH and increase 2-OH uh, forms of estrogen, which are anti-estrogen. In fact, they reduce growth and proliferation because they have a very low binding affinity to those receptors. So this is where we can actually use our knowledge of the detoxification process to intervene and change the way that the estrogen balance in the body occurs. And, and of course, one of the best ways in which we can do this is our good old number one treatment for an integrative perspective or any perspective, and that is exercise. <laughs> well, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, look, there's research that shows that even if you've never exercised in your life and you've had a breast cancer diagnosis, if you actually start exercising for the first time ever, you reduce your risk of recurrence by 50%. Yeah. You know, that's better than any treatment combined. Yeah. <laughs> so absolutely exercise is important. And that's also important for turning over those fat cells. You know, we store uh, a form of estrogen, a very active form of estrogen, estriol, in our fat cells. So we want to turn over those cells to release that estriol and try to replace it with, with fat cells that don't contain as much estriol. So you know, exercise is very important from a detoxification process, but also nutrients are important too. Like we want to promote the sulfation pathway, methylation pathways, uh, glutathionation and so on to promote 
um, production of those inactive forms of estrogen, and we can do that very well nutritionally. Sorry, Tanya, I don't mean to interject, but you're talking about estriol or estriol um, in the fat tissues, not estrone. Is that right? Yes. Yes, that's right. So both estriol and estrone are found in fat. Um, I guess when we think about the the main three types of estrogen that are active in the body is mm. sort of parent estrogens. Uh, estradiol, of course, is produced by the developing follicles in the ovaries, and that's our most um, bioactive form of estrogen. And then we've got estrone, which is found in our fat cells a bit, but predominantly produced by the adrenals, uh, especially postmenopausally. Yeah. That's the main source of estrogen postmenopausally. And then we've got estriol or E3, which is um, it is a major form of estrogen found in pregnancy, interestingly, mm. um, and also it is stored in our fat cells. So this is where women who have a high amount of fat, so those women who are obese, uh, certainly have a very high level of overall estrogen, but the, the predominant type is estriol followed by estrone in the fat cells. So can I then ask a question? You know, estriol was, you know, previously purported to be supposedly protective during pregnancy and that's why low amounts of breast cancer were seen in pregnancy, but it's it's not unfound. There are certainly women that suffer breast cancer during a pregnancy. Would these women be the higher fat content ladies? Um, not always. I guess when oh. it comes to recurrence, we certainly have evidence that uh, high levels of estriol from adipose tissue is a massive risk factor. Right. Um, I can't remember the exact statistic, but there's a certain percentage of increased risk per five kilograms of overweight. Mm. And that's certainly something that's significant, but... Uh, estriol is very important postmenopausally uh, as a risk factor, and unfortunately, most of the research in breast cancer is in postmenopausal women because of you know there's just not much research in women who are um, you know uh, possibly could be pregnant. Where yeah. We ha don't have many women participating in research that are premenopausal, but certainly all types of estrogen are important to have a look at. Um, and estriol generally is the least bioactive form of estrogen that we've got there. Right. And so, you know, we were talking about estrogen metabolism, putting it in its place about that estrogen dominance. But some women do have high estrogen metabolite issues. And I know this yes. is not a proven, you know, um, science that there still is conjecture about the relevance of estrogen metabolites, but by goodness, I mean, I've, I've seen issue after issue after issue when you've got high form. Mm, definitely. I think there, you know, there is so much research and multiple reviews about the role of estrogen and the different types of estrogen yeah. in cellular proliferation and um, growth and damage and DNA damage. And certainly. And there's a bit of a disparity between the in vitro research that seems to have a very yeah. clear result and yeah. then the clinical research, which is a bit more ambiguous. Yeah. And then we've got premenopausal and postmenopausal issues. So, for example, 16-OH um, form of estrogen does seem to be associated with increased risk if you're premenopausal, but postmenopausally, not so much. Ah, okay. Um, so it, it, there's, it depends on where you're at in your menstrual maturity and... Um, 
but we do want to use these things. You know, I use them clinically as a guide. I'm going to do that estrogen metabolite test and see exactly what my patient's current status is. Do they have really high levels of endogenous estrogens um, and high levels of these metabolites that we know are active? If we do, if that person does, then then we have a role to play in uh, providing support for sulfation, uh, methylation, uh, glutathionation and so on to actually promote phase two detox of those active metabolites yeah. into more inactive forms. Yeah. When we're talking about that, should we primarily be focusing on A, exercise and B, things like fibre in our diet to clear overall estrogen mm. from being recirculated and then you add other things, um, you know, to sort of nip nip things off at the bud to tweak things, or do you go in first with things that have a, you know, a really strong effect on the um, on the ratios and the levels of the metabolites? Well, I do a bit of everything. Yeah. Uh, so certainly, I would go for the overall um, microbiome support. Uh, for high fiber or not high fiber, but good level of fiber yeah, diet to yeah. make sure that we are getting that estrogen clearance exercise to turn over those fat cells and promote um, clearance of estrogens again. But I guess I do get a bit more specific and individualized with patients if you're finding that you know certain type certain types of estrogen metabolites are elevated. We might give sulfur compounds to promote sulfation, like broccoli sprout extract, sulforaphane, indothiocarbonyl, and so on. Methyl donors, of course, and then there's glutathione-rich foods that I would mostly use um, that are supportive in phase two detox. Um, but I guess then we we do have to talk about diet as well. I know that there is a huge focus on diets like keto diet, and certainly we do want a low carbohydrate diet, especially in people who are morbidly obese. Yeah, of course. But a keto diet is not necessarily appropriate in um, healthy body weight patients. Certainly we want a low carbohydrate, but we also need to make sure we're getting plenty of fibre in there for an appropriate microbiome support. So let's take this back to, you know, when a patient presents to your clinic. How much leeway do you have before treatment is going to begin and, and what sort of dietary measures do you engage in at different times of, of therapy? Well, I see patients in every part of that spectrum yeah. from, you know, uh, patients saying, oh, I've just found out that I've got a BRCA gene and there's no clinical presentation whatsoever all the way through to initial diagnosis or precancerous cells, DCIS and so on, yep. through to pre and post-surgery, chemo, radiation, everything, and then follow up into um, maintenance and prevention of recurrence. So I get patients coming who have started treatment, who are about to start treatment or who have finished treatment. It's so variable. Um, but certainly what I tend to do with ER positive breast cancers is give a overall anti-inflammatory diet. You did touch on this previously about inflammation and we do want an anti-inflammatory diet, which predominantly the research shows that a pesco-vegetarian diet is most appropriate. Um right. And we do, we do focus on that, a low-carbohydrate pesco-veg slash Mediterranean 
diet. Okay. So um, you've got an acceptance there, though. Like there, there was some work done by, you know, Volta Longo and, and, and others. Indeed, uh, Dominic D'Agostino is doing work, or, or forgive me, he... He knows the researchers that are doing other work in in mm. keto nutrition during cancer therapy, um, mm-hmm. but it's you know you've got a, an uphill battle trying to get the acceptance of an oncologist <laughs> to instigate it. Mm. The, uh, it can be that way. Mm-hmm. I've I found that I don't have a lot of trouble overall. Really. Um, with communication with oncologists, maybe because I've been doing it for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly um, the oncologist is quite happy typically uh, to interact in a positive way and and doesn't usually have much of an opinion about diet. Um, But certainly keto is very hard for the patient. Sure. And it's something that's a bit hard to maintain. And although I've definitely read the research about ketogenic diet as being helpful and certainly taking elements from that research is important. The, what I've seen clinically is that patients who get too into keto actually put themselves at risk of kidney damage during treatment. Ah, um, now there's so a salient where, point. Yeah, we have to be quite careful about a ketogenic diet. When you're in ketosis, you do need a huge amount of water intake every day in order to um, get rid of all those ketones and support kidney function. And certainly when patients are in chemotherapy, which then gives even further kidney risk, uh, we certainly need to be very careful with implementing that diet during treatment. Yeah. And it's not just that, but also kidney function. I mean, if you look at... It's uh, the your, biggest your red basic, flag you've waved. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's, a, it's just the basic knowledge we have about the kidneys. For example, when you look at a kidney function test and you see, oh, the glomerular filtration rate should be above 90 well, actually, that's in men. Yeah, um, a yeah. lot of women have a glomerular filtration rate less than 90 mm. uh, naturally, and that's just because most of the research about, you know, what is the appropriate glomerular filtration rate has uh, been conducted in men. So this is where we have to think oh about that God. when it comes to the issues around things like ketogenic diet during treatment. We have to look after our kidneys as women. Absolutely. And, you know, notwithstanding that you're on extremely toxic treatments that have got to be dispelled from the body. That's right. Thank you. I, like, I really, really thank you. It's been, that is a, a light bulb moment for me. Um, mm. Whereas the Mediterranean ty- style type diet is mm. socially acceptable, culturally acceptable, so much more easy to inst- instigate. There is. And certainly what you can do is take elements from each of these diets that's appropriate. And it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all program in oncology and it's not everyone should be keto or everyone should be paleo or everyone should be vegan. It's not necessarily the case. Yes, there's certainly evidence about a ketogenic diet being appropriate for certain types of brain tumours or uh, again, morbidly obese women with ER-positive breast cancer may be appropriate or those that have diabetes as well. But when it comes to um, making it easy for the patient, the patient is in a world of pain emotionally, environmentally, physically, and this is where we need to make sure that as clinicians we're realistic. We're looking at this not only from a pathophysiological perspective but also putting ourselves in that patient's shoes and going, what could I cope with if I was in this space? If I was having to cook for myself, do everything for myself and I didn't have that support team doing it for me, and even if I do have a support team, you know, what can I expect from them? 
to be able to make me and support me with. A, a low-carbohydrate um, Mediterranean pesco-vegetarian diet is appropriate. And if you want to take elements from other research, this is where we might do a little bit of intermittent fasting. Fasting pre- and post-chemotherapy may be helpful. Uh, exercise on the day of chemotherapy has certainly been proven to be helpful. You know, we take elements from the rest of that research to try to tailor each person's plan, individualise it to make sure that we're maximising the successful outcomes and then we're supporting them um, in every other way, including supporting their liver and kidney function. Can you just reiterate the fasting, the intermittent fasting around the chemotherapy episode? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of research emerging about intermittent fasting, and yeah. most of it is about breast cancer. Um, the, and there's multiple types of intermittent fasting. So there's extended overnight fasting, which can be helpful. Certainly that's been shown to improve insulin-like growth factor um, levels. We do It does reduce inflammatory chemical uh, levels, inflammatory mediator levels. Uh, and so I do recommend an extended overnight fast on an everyday basis. So 13 to 15 hour extended overnight fast, especially in women who are overweight or mm-hmm. obese. But around chemotherapy, it's more about having a 24 hour fast before or after uh, chemo, especially before, that it does induce a mildly um, I don't want to say ketogenic, but it is kind of a, a mildly ketogenic state mm. where you actually do have um, a fast just prior to having chemotherapy and that puts those cancer cells in a glucose-depleted state. Yep. Uh, if women are morbidly obese and they have ER-positive breast cancer, it is the case that those cancer cells do use up more glucose in the surrounding cells. But having that intermittent fast prior to chemotherapy puts those cells in that sort of relative glucose deficiency. You have the chemotherapy and then straight away have a snack. Yep. And that means that the the cancer cells are going, oh, sugar, I'm going to have, you know, a carbohydrate snack that's going to increase absorption of the glucose and the chemotherapy into those cells. Yeah. So, yeah. so sorry, I want to get this clear in my mind because I, I battle with this. So mm. what you're saying is fasting just fasting pr- uh, more than prior and then just prior you have a little snack? Uh, just during treatment. During you treatment snack. you have a snack. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. A, a healthy, you know, complex carbohydrate snack, but certainly you don't want to have, you know, a scotch finger biscuit or something, but certainly a healthy um, complex carbohydrate snack is going to, you know, improve uh Theoretically, and certainly according to some in vitro and in vivo research that shows that it does support transport of the treatment into the cancer cell. So we're just trying to tailor the chemistry of the body in that exact moment to (laughs) improve delivery of the chemotherapy to the target cells, which is very difficult. Okay. And, you know, obviously you've got challenges there. We've spoken about the estrogen metabolites briefly. Let's go a little bit further into that. What exactly do you use and and why? Mm. Well, when it comes down to actual treatment, you know, apart from our anti-inflammatory diet exercise, we're really wanting to support 
that person's stress response, immune system and so on. I guess when it comes down to the nitty-gritty of um, estrogen metabolism, we do need to make sure that we've got appropriate support for each of those phase two pathways. So sulfation pathway, I mean, the broccoli sprout extract definitely has shown to be the most powerful extract. And so you can actually just make your own broccoli sprouts or you can get a broccoli sprout extract like sulforaphane, um, which has been researched as an independent sulfur compound. Yep to not only support sulfation but also be anti-cancer. It certainly switches on repair DNA repair genes and it has multiple other roles in an anti-cancer um, pathway. But uh, there's others too like indole-3-carbonyl, methane, calcium diglucarate that are all involved in sulfation. And I do tend to give all of those as a package uh, to support that sulfation pathway rather than just broccoli sprout extract or sulforaphane. Um, I do find that in when I'm monitoring patients, so I do tend to do some estrogen metabolite testing as a baseline and then every three or four months to check in and make sure that we are tailoring those doses required for that individual in real time, making sure that we are keeping up to date with how the estrogen metabolite balance is going. And I do tend to give all of those sulfur compounds as well as methyl donors uh, to support methylation and, of course, glutathione either as a supplement or as glutathione-rich foods. Actually, I did want to make a point there about methylation in that this is where you might want to do an MTHFR test. Yeah. Uh, certainly there was a review in 2017 that showed that the MTHFR-C 677T mutation, far more common in ER-positive breast cancer patient populations. Ah, okay. Uh, so it is something that, you know, if you've got someone who does have that MTHFR mutation, it may contribute to poor methylation, which then has an effect on estrogen metabolites. When we're looking at methylation, do we want to be doubly sure that we're handling everything that happens with quieting the genes, if you like. So when you're talking about the sulforaphane, the broccoli sprout extract, that we're making sure that mm. we're doing the best that we can for that patient to actually get rid of the drivers of those cancers, not just, quote, unquote, looking at methylation. Is is that yes. something you're like just really oh. on, you know, on the ball about? Absolutely. Uh, but when it comes to DNA and DNA repair, and DNA mutations, gene mutations that may actually contribute to ER-positive breast cancer recurrence. There is a huge body of research about that, and certainly um, we can certainly delve deeper into that with regards to there's a few key you know, uh, cancer susceptibility genes that we do need to be aware of. It's yeah. not all about the MTHFR. It's not all about sulfation. We do need to step back and look at the bigger picture and say, okay, these are all of the things that we know are relevant in this situation and try to prioritise accordingly. And certainly we may have information already that that person has presented about their um, genetic status and whether they have any gene mutations or SNPs or whatever they might be um, testing for. And then we actually can intervene in those processes as well. It's a pretty common scenario that a patient comes in with genetic testing that's already been oh, done. Okay. Yep. 
And I've got to say, I wonder if the day is coming where we'll just carry it around like we always carry around our driver's license. It's something that we have, <laughs> you know, whether we want to use it or not. Well, that's mm. our own choice. But I guess the problem is people who don't know what they're carrying around or what they're doing. <laughs> you know, there's always that and, concern. And even if you do, it's not necessarily a done deal. You know, I, I know a lot of patients who say, oh, well, I've got this gene, so therefore, you know, I'm going to get this type of cancer. That's not true. No, we actually have right. ways of intervening in the expression of that gene and there are ways of switching on DNA repair genes uh, that, you know, downregulate the expression of all sorts of oncogenic um, gene mutations. We have a lot of impact in this area and we know a lot about it. For example, BRCA gene, uh, you know, the BRCA gene is a tumour suppressor gene involved in DNA repair and this does contribute to incidence of breast cancer but not, it doesn't seem to um, relate too much to reoccurrence but certainly women who have a BRCA gene, uh, I think there's something like 50 to 70% lifetime risk of breast cancer versus 12% with no BRCA. But, um, and it also contributes to ovarian cancer incidence. But, you know, we used to think that um, some substances like genistein and indole-3-carbonyl only targets the estrogen receptors. But now we know oh, yeah. that these natural medicines actually down-regulate the expression of the BRCA1 and 2 genes themselves. You know, they're the molecular target, not necessarily the estrogen receptor. So we actually have a... a a growing body of research that shows that, you know, an intervention is possible when it comes to existing gene mutations. We have so much of a rabbit hole to go down there, Tanya, but <laughs> let's pull it back a bit. Let's go down a little bit further into testing. What testing mm -hmm. do you do and why? Well, it depends on the patient. Certainly um, depends on how they're presenting and their other um, known disease states. But I guess General things that I would test for, I would definitely do a um, a dried urine metabol estrogen metabolite test. Yep. Um, you know, there's been – I was actually just reading about this the other day about whether that test is actually valid. It does definitely seem to be more valid than a just a standard blood test. It certainly is telling us a lot more about the way that the body is working and I do tend to use that urine metabolite test mm. um, more than serum testing. Um, I would definitely do MTHFR testing. Um, I also look for other nutrients that are relevant when it comes to phase one and two detox, like selenium, um, uh, vitamin D levels. I often do a cytokine profile because I want to see what some pro-carcinogenic uh, interleukins like IL-6 or the insulin-like growth factor levels are. Um, and sometimes I'll do CTC testing, so the circulating tumour cell testing. It is very expensive and I don't always think that it's relevant yeah. to do that. I'd like to see what's happening in the chemistry of that person's body at the time and that's why the estrogen metabolite test really is important. Because it's looking at not only the different forms of estrogen that have been broken down, also looks at your level of BPA, uh, cortisol and cortisone levels, melatonin and other things that that are relevant from an anti-cancer perspective. And what about frequency of testing? I mean, obviously, you know, for instance, if you're going to be looking at something that's going to influence estrogen metabolites, you want a baseline and then you want to see if you've, you've done good work. That's right. All of this, of course, is dependent upon whether that person's taking an aromatase inhibitor. When you're, if you're on an aromatase inhibitor, 
uh, that pretty much puts your estrogen levels at zero because <laughs> it's reducing uh, the conversion of testosterone to estrogen. So, you know, that's going to skew the results. But if you've got someone who is not on an aromatase inhibitor, you do want to take that uh, estrogen metabolite test metabolite test as a baseline, mm-hmm. then you are implementing treatment. So you're obviously stimulating sulfation or methylation or glutathionation. And then I would tend to test about every three or four months, uh, three months at the beginning, just to really make sure that we are individualizing the dosage for that patient and making sure that we're changing it kind of in real time. We yeah. really want to see the impact of our treatment. Um, and you could do it every two months if you really wanted to, but I'd say every three months just so that we can check in on that particular part of the treatment and support plan and make sure that we're having an effect. You know, we want to make sure we're monitoring that. We've spoken about what do you do if the levels are high. What about really high? Like what about dangerous? You know, that's where you have to look at integrative care uh, in a way that is appropriate for the patient. And we do often give much higher dosages of support from a, a complementary medicine perspective. And that's definitely where an argument for an anti-cancer, anti-estrogen therapy from a medical perspective is, is very reasonable. You know, you want to make sure that they are intervening on multiple levels, not just with natural medicine. Yeah. And then obviously you've you've got the issue of recurrence and you've got the issue Mm -hmm. of, you know, more than one cycle of therapy and how people fare with subsequent cycles, particularly when you've got, let's say, somebody who's obese, they've got a real Mm -hmm. risk of recurrence because of their body weight, their type of -hmm. of cancer. So you've got a whole pot of negative influences there. Motivation, you know, how how they're um, faring during their cycles, during their cycles of therapy. How do you address all of these things with a positive Mm. outcome and hopefully reaching a positive outcome? Well, I think one of the things to be is realistic as a practitioner. Yeah. Um, I'm very lucky in my clinic. I have a fantastic team of practitioners, including an exercise physiologist, acupuncturist, um, counsellors, psychologists who, you know, are there as a holistic support team. You know, we're a team of practitioners who are supporting patients irrespective of where they are in that, that treatment spectrum and their experience of oncology, whether they're a new patient or certainly in that prevention of recurrence phase. And having someone, it's all very well, us as complimentary therapists or naturopaths saying, oh, you need to exercise and this is what we need to do. You do it when um, you feel like a hangover. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got to get a bit more specific. So, you know, supporting patients to lose weight slowly. We don't really want to lose weight too quickly. That actually liberates um, estrogen from the cancer cells. Um, so we do want to make sure it's a steady, slow weight loss, no more than about a kilo a week. Yep, great. Um, and although, you know, we do also hear that as an excuse, you know, I definitely have heard that with patients saying, oh, my doctor says I can't lose weight quickly. Well, we're not asking you to lose five kilos a week. We're, no. we're saying a half to one kilo a week, which is reasonable. And certainly when, when you're morbidly obese and, you know, if you're projecting ahead, that's two years of, you know, restricted diet and exercise that you're looking forward to, you definitely need plenty of, you know, emotional support to help you through that and realistic um, chats with a practitioner who's going to 
you know, refer to a team of support people to help that person throughout that process. It's yeah. not easy. Like I've got to say, like that one kilo a week, when you're thinking about a long-term yeah. issue, they haven't gotten overweight overnight. Um, so we're talking no. about something that's a learned or a habitual thing. Um, mm. But it's actually, it's it's not just about losing weight, of course. We want to make sure that we're supporting the chemistry of the body. For example, um, you know, I have a little rule and that is that, you know, you must have your cardio exercise and your weight-bearing exercise or stretch exercise to a one-to-one ratio because people think that they have to just do cardio to lose weight. In fact, that can be counterproductive. Doing an excessive amount of cardio increases your cortisol levels over time, which then actually can promote an inflammatory process. So we do want to look at the big picture again and say, okay, well, we need to increase your muscle mass. We do a little bit of weight-bearing exercise combined with a fairly low-carbohydrate you know, Mediterranean diet and just start to have a look at our portion size. I don't don't recommend calorie counting or anything like that. It's not helpful. And so we want to just sort of do bit by bit by bit by bit to change those habits and promote well-being. And all of that requires, you know, a team of people, especially exercise physiologists, having someone on hand who can help with that on a very practical level is it's a real win from a clinical perspective. I've got to say, from the worker, I think it was Edith Cowan University in Western Australia, have an exercise physiologist come to the fore lately. <laughs> they certainly have. <laughs> and, of course, you can you know, have some subsidised consultations with them and uh, they certainly know their stuff. Certainly know their stuff, but good, good effects in, in cancer therapy, in, in cancer outcomes. Brilliant. Brilliant work Absolutely. that they've done over there. And cardiovascular disease, and often they go hand in hand. What can you tell us about DNA repair genes, Tanya? Okay, so certainly DNA repair genes is absolutely uh, the talk of the moment. And everybody who comes in as a patient, I mean, I've got plenty of patients who come in and they have already spent the last two months pretty much on Dr. Google trying to learn everything they can about DNA. Right. I guess when it comes to a clinical perspective, we have to, again, step back and say, right, what do we definitely know about cause and effect inferences when it comes to DNA uh, repair genes and what effect they can have? Um, Most of the research is unfortunately in vitro. So what we have to do is just draw from that what we think is relevant so we did briefly discuss before about uh, the BRCA1 and 2 genes mm. and how, you know, that is something that the research has shown that the genes themselves can actually be a molecular target for treatment rather than, you know, we've got definitely got receptor-focused research up until this point. Um, but then we've got other things like the TP53 or P53 gene. You know, this is a tumour suppressor gene that um, has been shown to be mutated in over 50% of cancers. Now, there's really not a medical intervention, um, but certainly there's a lot of research about it. We know from in vitro research that, say, for example, cucurbin can convert P50, a mutated P53 into a functional or wild-type P53, which begs the question, does cucurbin actually only work in patients that have a mutated P53 gene uh, rather than the functional wild-type? You know, there's questions there. But we've got other natural medicines that have been found to be able to switch on repair of the P53 gene, resveratrol, 
curcumin, as I said, green tea extract, genistine, and these can be quite important preventative strategies. Yeah. Given that we know that, you know, DNA damage occurs over a lifetime. So in prevention of recurrence, we definitely want to be focusing on some of these other DNA repair genes and just switching them on as a matter of course uh, in order to just add to the reduced likelihood of getting a recurrence in the future. Sure. This is really interesting stuff, isn't it? I mean, Mm. you're talking about the repair of, you know, something that's been damaged with the, I mean, the two-hit hypothesis, for instance. Um, Oh, it's... Wow. Absolutely fascinating. <laughs> but uh, again, you can kind of get stuck in a rabbit hole and, and it just sucks you in and as a clinician, you know, we really want to know about that kind of thing, but we also want to get ourselves out of that hole and go, okay, how can we actually, let's get back to those cause and effect inferences that are modifiable processes. Let's see how we can intervene in this person's body's chemistry to reduce risk of recurrence in the future and kind of bring it back to those practical levels. And when you're talking about practical levels, you know, like you think about curcumin, you think about where the research came from. It came from curries. Um, And (laughs) and how much of this stuff can we um, incorporate into a patient's diet and lifestyle and, and show them how to eat a little bit differently and then over time maybe if they needed to a lot differently, Um, um, but, Mm. you know, having a far healthier diet that's going to actually be repairing their DNA, their genes. I mean, that's a powerful thing. It's very powerful. And certainly it does go back to naturopathy 101 where we're talking about, you know, the food bio medicine. But it comes, it is something that, you know, often when patients are in an active cancer process they may need supplementation and intense supplementation like high dose supplementation of key nutrients uh, in an evidence-based way but then I guess when it comes to general prevention of recurrence and really uh, just stepping back again and saying okay well what are we going to do as practitioners what what are the big take-home messages here certainly we want to uh, assess those risk factors but and, and choose those interventions appropriately. And that requires quite a lot of background research. You know, working in oncology is not easy. We not only have to know about our own medicine and what they, that can do, but also how it's going to interact with conventional medicine, which is another complex issue. Mm, another complex issue. But I guess issue. when we come back and we say, okay, what are we going to do here? Yeah. There are some easy things that as a clinician we can support patients. We can... We can look at body weight. Certainly that's often the elephant in the room from a patient's perspective and we do need to have frank conversations about it and uh, do some motivational interviewing techniques just to help patients prioritise that. Um, but there's key things, exercise definitely, especially weight-bearing exercise, You know, a little bit of extended overnight fasting or key fasting, reducing alcohol, of course, because alcohol is the number one uh, environmental toxin that causes mutations of DNA. We do want to look at the stress response. Uh, stress response, of course, leads to higher inflammation, which can then lead to uh, alteration of the microbiome and breast cancer promotion. So we do want to focus on, you know, the insulin-like growth factor and insulin signaling. And, you know, there's so many other things, general diet, support 
of uh, making sure you don't have too much exposure to light at night. You know, shift workers need that extra support. So there's the general things that actually make a huge difference and just implementing a good, healthy, whole food, low meat, low dairy, low carbohydrate, but high nutrient-dense varied diet is one of the Mm. first things that we can do and that's pretty easy. I remember Lee's giving me a very salient lesson about eat a rainbow every day but not including textures. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Every day sometimes is a bit hard but I I get people to look at, okay, let's have a rainbow in a week, make sure that we've definitely got every colour. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, sometimes we just need to give the right easy recipes, give ideas of what we eat, you know, to help patients you know, come up with new ideas. We tend to eat very sandy. Yeah. Nice to have some new ideas. Yes. So about preventing recurrence and, you know, one of the the elephants in the room is the ongoing hypervigilance of patients. How do you address that? Mm. That's a really tough one. Um, and that is something that's very difficult to manage, certainly the fear of recurrence and and that tendency to be hypervigilant is completely normal. So what we're wanting to do is just rationalise it, work out how we can live with that reality. We definitely have psychologists here who are very experienced in supporting patients um, to manage fear of recurrence. And I guess this is the thing, when you've got a practitioner who is supporting you in prevention of recurrence or known prevention of recurrence strategies, obviously there's never a guarantee about that, but certainly... There are known prevention of recurrence strategies that when you are implementing them as a patient, it gives you a huge level of confidence in your future. So you're not just flailing at the end of your process, medical procedures and just off on your own. You are actually following a plan and that plan can give you uh, confidence in and reduce that fear of recurrence. It is something that's really important because, you know, when a patient's in the process of having treatment, they are just putting one step in front of the other, getting through the day, yeah. getting through the next treatment, and there's no time for processing. It's at the end when, you know, the doctors are like, oh, well, you don't need to come back for another six months. Off you go, get back to your life. You know, that that person is sitting there going, what? What do you mm. mean get back to my life? My life is never going to be the same. It's changed, yeah, that's right. And patients are, you know, in that perfect space to actually have almost like a post-traumatic stress disorder present itself. Mm, absolutely. Um, and that's when that person really needs psychology support. So that's where it's very important to have key um, practitioners who are experienced in psycho-oncology support to be able to help that person in that moment. And then for us, you know, our role is to help that person have a plan have a plan of enhancing wellness, reducing risk factors, and that actually gives you a huge level of confidence in your future. Uh, We've learnt so much from your expertise here today, Tanya, I've got to say, and you've given me a couple of bricks to the head which have woken me up about a red flag, and, and that was renal disease, when you're looking at what diet to, to initiate. And so we've learnt mm. about that. What other red flags do we have to be mindful of, just quickly? Um, I guess the other red flags are just, I mean, the biggest red flags, of course, are looking at drug-herb interactions and drug-nutrient interactions yep. um, and any other pre-existing conditions that 
from a prevention of recurrence perspective, you know, we've got young women, you know, we're, if we're talking about ER positive breast cancer specifically, um, you know, most of the patients that I'm seeing with that presentation are between the age of 40 and 30 mm-hmm. and 60. Mm-hmm. Uh, cardiovascular disease is not necessarily the number one issue there, but certainly uh, drug herb interactions is definitely one of the biggest red flags that we'd be looking out for to make sure that anything that we're going to promote isn't going to interfere with any other treatment. Sure. Tanya, I cannot thank you enough from a personal level, but I just your expertise shines. Tanya Wells, thank you so much for taking through just a glimmer of your expertise today on FX Medicine. I personally truly thank you. I'm, I'm so honoured to meet you and have you on the show. Thanks very much, Andrew. It's my pleasure. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. To conclude his distinguished career, legendary Australian herbalist Dennis Stewart will present his final course, a professional extension in herbal medicine. Commencing on the 23rd of November 2019, this 12-day intensive course will be held over a period of 12 months on the New South Wales Central Coast. This will be your last opportunity to participate in detailed learning with Dennis, covering relevant, effective herbal prescriptions to treat an expansive range of conditions. For more information and to register, please go to lakespa.com.au.